You're about to listen to a Second City Works presentation. Brought to you in partnership with WGN Radio. Subscribe on your favorite podcast streaming platform or listen on WGNRadio.com. And be sure to share. The Second City is back open for live shows, classes, and customized corporate workshops and events. But we also have all those things available in virtual formats. For more information, go to secondcity.com. Uh, so Chris Porath uh, is a tenured professor at Georgetown University's McDonough School of Business. She's been on the podcast before. Um, she's the author of Mastering Civility, which is what she came on and talked about previously. Um, she has got a new book. It's called Mastering Community, The Surprising Ways Coming Together Moves Us from Surviving to Thriving. I think you're going to really enjoy our conversation. <laughs> The Second City is a world-famous comedy theater, and it got so famous because it has produced generation after generation of comedy superstars. That didn't happen by magic. Second City's improvisational pedagogy fuels great performance, and the same practices that made stars of everyone from Bill Murray to Tina Fey can be applied for success offstage, at work, at home, and in the world. I'm Kelly Leonard, Executive Director of Insights and Applied Improvisation at The Second City. This podcast is about collaborative conversations, seeking connections, and finding a better way. This is Getting to Yes And. Days can be counted by the money you spend. Today was just another better left unsaid. Days can be counted by the time to rent. Tomorrow's just another like the one that comes next. The corner of the highway that leads to the job at the desk by the boss with the elegant watch. The tick of the clock and the tick of the clock mark the moments till the ticking stops. Christine Porath, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. Uh, it's great to have you back. Um, I love the simplicity of the first three sentences in the introduction to your new book, Mastering Community. You write... We yearn for connection, but we are disconnected. We find ourselves on platforms, not in communities, end quote. And so I just was thinking for all that social media has connected us, it's actually done the opposite as well, right? Yeah. And, you know, a friend actually had had mentioned that exact saying, the platforms and communities analogy to me. Uh, And, you know, one of the things that struck me is, but we feed that too. So it's not only that we're there, but it seems like we're, we're headed in a direction that unfortunately is going to harm us more by feeding that. Yeah. I think the thing about when, when I've lived in communities, I've lived next door or in a community where most people didn't vote the way I voted. I, I, you know, was forced to deal with all kinds of different human beings. And increasingly, that's not the case for the people who are growing up today. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, the idea that we're, it's really divisive, you know, and that we find ourselves um, kind of separating ourselves uh, because of those differences, let's say, whether it's politics or others, I think only leads us to greater isolation um, and, you know, is, is feeding us in ways that are really hurtful for ourselves. You know, like the loneliest epidemic I really buy into. I, and by the way, I started this all pre pandemic, like this book was in the works, mm. you know, was leading into this. And then it was like, wow, uh Oh, you know, like these stats are going to be alarming if I was able to update them quickly enough, because I think, you know, where we come out of this is, is far worse than the intro stats allude to. 
Yeah, and I would I would think I mean the pandemic and the sort of social uh, justice movement, all of that just amplified things that were already there. So I imagine that's what it just it gives you a broader lens through which to see the book. Yeah, I think so, and I think you know um, coming out of this, I hope what people are yearning for is like how do we find community and how right. do we you know which. Honestly, and this is like, you know, from personal experience, um, once you get into that, it's hard to find a team, you Mm -hmm. know, and you are more isolated. I think um, we do become stuck, you know, and it becomes tougher for ourselves. And so finding momentum to kind of reinsert ourselves into community post pandemic is something that uh, I think people are going to be challenged with. Uh, you, in the introduction, talk about your brother, Mike, um, yes. and it, I'd love you to sort of talk. It's a tough story, but I think it's a profound one, and it really shapes what 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 the book is. Oh, thank you very much. I appreciate it. Um, yeah, Mike and Stor- Sarah, his wife, my sister-in-law, were wonderful to kind of share this story, but um, they really inspired the book and, and the story of The Mighty, which which came out of their personal experience, which was... Um, I remember the day vividly when Mike called when this happened, but Mm -hmm. uh, it was a day when for years, for a couple of years, um, my goddaughter, who is their oldest, Annabelle, uh, they couldn't figure out what was wrong with her. So, you know, it was one of these things. It was also their firstborn. And so no one was diagnosing her. And so they were thinking, you know, like the lights aren't on, but we're not sure what she has. She's not typical autistic because, you know, she's affectionate, she's whatever. And Mm -hmm. so it was really hard. And they were taking her to doctors up and down the East Coast and wondering, Uh, what was wrong and really struggling. And so then they ended up having this, uh, you know, expensive genetic test done and learning uh, one day that she had the markers for a very rare disease called DUP15, which is, you know, an extra chromosome uh, 15. And um, so they got that call. And then the same day uh, they found out that their Sarah, the baby Sarah was carrying was missing an organ and possibly many organs. And so mm-hmm. it was the first, you know, sonogram. And they said, you know, they have the conversation about the potential of seeing this pregnancy through. And so they actually returned home to the Annabelle news, which was a recording. This is dating it a bit, but a, mm-hmm. a recording on the phone saying, you know, what she had. And so, you know, it was just like two just tremendous blows. And then once Mike, you know, because no one also had information on what Duke 15 was, it's rare. And so literally this, you know, the story is he Googled it and, and to learn more about like, what are the expectations? Cause it was kind of like, you know, her mind won't develop beyond a five-year-old and she, you know, she's not going to thrive and all this stuff. She, uh, She may die prematurely. And so, to get his arms around it, they really turn to what's out there for us to learn from. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, unfortunately, because of a lot of reasons, including genetic testing is expensive and people don't have access to that and everything else. Like there's not a lot of people that di- that are diagnosed with this either. And so it was just one of those things where they were trying to figure out how do we move forward with this and help support her as best as possible and um, the web and really finding like parents that were dealing with this were actually the source. So Mike actually stumbled upon um, uh, it was a PDF file, like six years old. Mm. And it had several stories from parents around, you know, dealing with autism, kids that had seizures 40 times a day, all this stuff. And 
Um, you know, Mike said it was amazing, like the joy and humor in these stories, though. And so right. it really helped him come to terms with like, we can do something with this. Like, I'm a first time parent. <laughs> you don't know what we're doing anyway. Now, what are we dealt with? Like, how do we move forward and support her as best as possible? Because the two things that they knew from the onset were we want her to have happiness and we want to have her to have independence, you know, yeah. and how do we do those things and, and also hold our family together? Because, you know, as you might guess with um, people that are helping support disabled children, much less probably anyone else, it's an extraordinarily high divorce rate and everything. So it, it isn't just about how do we take care of the child? It's how do we deal with ourselves and, you know, those relationships and so forth. So Anyway, it was, um, you know, they were dealt a lot and they, Mike has written about this. So I didn't want to kind of steal his story too much, but he wrote a really touching blog about that night, you know, lying in bed and talking to Sarah and saying like, I don't know, but we're going to do something good with this. And, you know, they were both in tears and Sarah's like, what do you mean? Like, how, how are we going to do something good with this? And he said, I don't know, but we are. Mm-hmm you know, and so fast forward a few years. And so this was kind of cooking with friends of his too, um, because he came from a journalist background of like, is there a way that we can put something together so that people have resources and have inspiring stories? And he knew from being a journalist, stories are really, really helpful right. to people. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that was kind of a really important piece of the mighty, but just began kind of building it and, you know, true to community, which is again, not in the intro, but um, he had friends really step up. Like you got to build the website, buddy, you know, like do it now. And Sarah finally pushed him and said like, when, no, and Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you know, we don't come from money. And so it was a matter of like, how do we do this? You know, he was going to figure out a way to consult a little bit and, and then just pour everything they had into starting this up. But um, from the get-go, people were very generous because I think they also believed in the uh, cause and everything. Mm-hmm. And so in a, in a way, it really was a community effort. And the contributors were people that you know were um, either dealing with disease, disabilities, disorders, and sharing their stories and either how they coped with it, what the you know, setbacks were, um, you know, potentially what was helpful, all of those things. And so it it, it was really, um, it grew very organically, I would say. Uh, but it's just been, you know, kind of, you know, I guess the story of an entrepreneur is it's, it's the ups and downs. It's really stressful, you know, but yeah. moving forward with that. And of course, then raising Annabelle and her brothers, they now have three other, um, she has three other siblings, uh, mm-hmm. all boys. And, they are a wonderful community. Like you could write a little book about them and that's uh, like, I'm obviously the proud biased aunt, but uh, Mm -hmm. they're just remarkable to be around. But honestly, the days around like that, even community of Duke 15ers that Mike is involved with, he's on the board and stuff. um, It's really hard because, you know, I think as you, you can relate to, these are the most inspiring families. And also it's incredibly sad to see what they're going through. Well, that's and, and and what we know is um, uh, that these sort of tr- really trying times. The one thing we need is community connection, relationships, and far too often that's when people feel depleted and go the other direction, which does yeah. nothing for us. So then, 
you know, uh, finding a world that will sit with you in your grief and your trauma and your pain is not always easy. Um, It it used to be easier when we had churches and we had, you know, neighbors and stuff, you know, and and that's less and less the case. And I want to stick in the sort of healthcare field because I found that so fascinating because you talk about Dr. Jeffrey Geller and something I had never heard of, which is shared medical appointments. Talk talk to us about that. That's amazing. Yeah, so I I love this. I'm glad um, it was new in a way for you. But Mm -hmm. yeah, it was again, this was pre pandemic, but I stumbled upon something that seemed very tied to the mighty and the vision for the mighty, which is like, how do we bring people together, you know, so that they can learn from each other as much as possible. And so this was something that Dr. Geller started in Massachusetts. Um, you know, nearly 20 years ago now, uh, around what he saw as a a resident actually was like, why were some people um, going to the emergency room far more often and things. Mm -hmm. And he actually learned it was because of essentially loneliness, (laughs) you know, they were, they felt um, isolated and things like that. And so one of the things that he just kind of piloted and tested was, what if we brought together a group of people that we're dealing with something, let's say diabetes or something like that. And, and is there a way that over a course of weeks, they could, you know, one doctor, maybe a nutritionist, they bring in some specialists, um, but how would they progress? And what he learned very early on, and then the Cleveland Clinic was also starting these just, you know, a year or two later was the results were amazing for these groups of people. And in fact, the Cleveland Clinic has documented very clearly, very recently, um, far better for the group versus one-on-one appointments. And part of that is just the peer sharing. So it was what Mike was getting at also, which was um, family and friends are great, but they can't really relate to what I'm going through, you know? Mm-hmm. And I have questions that only parent, other parents are answering, <laughs> you know, like how do I get Annabelle to, you know, pick up stuff in her food tray? Like she's not doing the pincher grass. Well, like some other parent had come up with a trick for that. And so it was the same idea. Oh, tell, us, tell us what that trick was. Cause I thought that was interesting. <laughs> yeah. So um, it was great. So she was not able to pinch her food like most kids. So she wasn't able to eat on her own. And he posted again on Google and just asked because all these specialists had no answers or the answers weren't working. And so this mother actually who was living abroad um, said, oh, yeah, you cut two tiny holes in a sock and you put them, you know, put the, that sock with just her thumb and four fingers sticking out and then a sock on the other hand, which is not going to be helpful. And she'll fit, put her favorite she'll food on a tray and she'll figure it out, you know. <laughs> wow. And so, so yeah, Annabelle was great with the blueberries, you know, like she mastered that. So, but again, this was not, you know, all these specialists had no like kind of solution for that. And it was someone else who had gone through it. And that's what Dr. Geller and the Cleveland Clinic has found is peers are really effective. Um, And what was super interesting to me, having talked to folks at the Cleveland Clinic was, Um, The idea that doctors would say, listen, I had been telling this patient for three years to go and get this done, Mm -hmm. you know, and they wouldn't. And then a peer said, do it because I found out, you know, that I had cancer. And, you know, if you don't, there's, you know, potential consequences. And the patient immediately did it. But it was like hearing from a peer or hearing a peer's solution to a potential challenge, you know, not being able to ride a bus to see family because they had to go to the bathroom so often. And it was Mm -hmm. like, what worked for that? You know, have you tried this? Have you tried this? What about eating this? 
And so what struck me is it's, it's almost like counter to what we as academics or experts would recommend is like, listen to the, you know, the, the person with the degree or the person with the, it's like, no, listen to the person that has lived with this and has probably done trial and error with it. Yeah. On that topic, I found it funny. So my friend, uh, Linnea Gandhi was, helped uh, Danny Kahneman and his team write his last book. And at one point she's like, Hey, would you give notes on a chapter? And I, I felt so proud of myself that I was being asked to give notes until I read the book. And there's a whole like chapter on the fact that like dummies are often really good to use when you're looking <laughs> at information on what you're working on. That's, you know, it's not just experts, right? Yeah. Um, so, you know, whatever. Right? I still got, I still got thanked in the book and that was a big deal. Uh, uh, I was excited to see, um, we have a mutual friend who's uh, just left the Cleveland clinic, uh, uh, Adrian Boise uh, pop up in, in the book and she's great. And I've spoken there and, and done work with, with those folks at Cleveland clinic. And they are so in tune with seeing the whole human being as a integral part of caregiving. And that, that just, you, you tell many stories in, in the book about that. Yeah, I really, I mean, she is someone that I really respect. I've collaborated with her. Um, I know, you know, she's close with you and thinks very highly of you and, and all. And um, she was wonderful to learn from, you know, especially uh, one of the things beyond the, she told me a little bit about the shared medical appointments was um, the empathy training that they did with doctors and how valuable that was. And I was actually just looking at that section recently. And I thought, I wonder if that's a model for now we talk about how leaders need empathy, you know, and especially, again, like coming out of the pandemic, that that's being, you know, really highlighted as effective leaders are going to need to be more empathetic. And I wondered to myself, you know, I think she came up with a model that just might work, you know, mm-hmm. that um, it's really about getting people to understand and to walk in someone else's shoes and to sh- to just articulate also that they care. Because I think leaders often maybe are seen as not caring when in fact they do, but they're just not conveying it very effectively. You know, they're either fast forwarding to the performance or what have you, but um, she, and again, you know, she has a lot of data behind this, which of course I love, you know, being able to kind of show that this stuff works super effectively. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And yeah. So anyway, the, just, it was amazing, not only the results for patients, but it reduced um, physician burnout dramatically and improved physician retention, which is so costly uh, for places. Um, so it was just a win across the board for the Cleveland clinic with this and something that, you know, I think the book is pretty blunt about this because she was very blunt about this. <laughs> it was okay with the fact that, you know, people were very, very skeptical. Like she yeah. really had to work hard to get the people that she wanted to do the training in this and then to get people to, kind of buy into the soft skills and so, right. so forth. We so. need a better word for that. Who, what, <laughs> what, what, like this would be a bestseller if we come up with a word, better word for soft skills because they're the hardest. And when I was thinking, I want to say this too about empathy, especially as practice at Cleveland Clinic and in many sort of health systems, it's a muscular empathy. It's a yeah. rugged empathy. It is not, it is not soft in any way. It, it is about just sitting with someone when the hardest thing is going on and, 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 and it's not just, it's not feeling sorry. It's being present, you know, it's, it's, which is much, much harder. Um, And I think that, that 
you know, absolutely. And we were talking before we even started recording about uh, college kids these days who are Mm -hmm. really struggling, not just because of the pandemic, but I mean, you know, they're looking at the cost of education and are they going to be living with these bills and what, what are the jobs that are out there? I mean, it's a, just such a critical time where we need to be taking care of each other. And unfortunately we sort of have echo chambers that are doing the opposite. Oh, and I was also gonna mention to you, uh, we've been talking about burnout a bunch on the podcast with different authors. And there's a Mayo Clinic study recently that says treating burnout at, at group levels, at team levels, as opposed to individual levels is, is better. And I thought that, that speaks to exactly what you're talking about in this book. Yeah, that's awesome. I'll have to take a look at that because I think, again, coming out of the pandemic, it's so important. You know, I mean, so many people are feeling burnt out, whether it's Zoom fatigue or what have you, you know, yeah. the idea of um, just how do we we move ourselves forward? So that's helpful. And I think, again, plugging into our support networks and and even, you know, leaders, I was just being asked about this, but leaders um, asking, you know, starting a meeting by saying, like, what's one routine that has worked for you in terms of like recovery or taking care of yourself okay. through the pandemic? Yeah. And yeah. so, again, it's it's about sharing then and then, you know, steal what works for you and yeah. try it. And then even better, and I love uh, Kelly McGonigal's book, who I I talk about in the book later, but um, her, you know, really highlighting research that shows doing exercise, let's say, or movement in a group, you get an amplifier effect. And so I think, again, you know, take burnout, take whatever, and, you know, having that support network, like you started with the Mike story, and then also the um, shared medical appointments, that's, it. I mean, it, it really is kind of a solution to just like insert the, and do it in a group, you know, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Have, have, do it in concert with others, you know, and yeah, the tribe tribes don't need to be bad. No. <laughs> so they, no. they can go that way, but they right. can go the other way. That means. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, uh, speaking of which I want to, in your section on unleashing, uh, you talk about the 100,000 Homes campaign, and I thought that was f- fascinating in terms of the discovery of, of the, the binder. <laughs> Can you tell yeah. us about that? Sure. Um, so uh, this was a wonderful story that Bob Sutton actually put me oh, in Oh, Bob told with. you that? Yeah, he, he encouraged me. Um, you know, I threw this book idea by him, and he was wonderful. And in fact, we we actually tried to write an op-ed on how organizations are bright spots, like mm-hmm. meaning communities a couple of years ago, it went nowhere. So like no one wanted to buy into this. <laughs> so, of course. So, somewhere along the line, I was asked like, what's your next book? And I was like, mm-hmm. well, this didn't work for an op-ed. So surely it's going to be golden for a book. Yep. Um, but uh, yeah, so Bob was, he said, you have to talk to Joe McCannon was, was one person who he's close to, but also Becky um, Margiota. And, uh, sh- and so sure enough, they, shared with me the story of 100,000 homes, which I just thought was such a wonderful, inspiring story and something that, of course, we need more of housing homelessness people. But um, Becky's story around the binder was that as part of kind of scaling this campaign, one thing that they did was they put together a binder, you know, and that that way that they could have more kind of officials come in and learn the system and then go out into their cities and, you know, hopefully do some of this um, just to kind of keep it growing at the rate that they were trying to. And 
So what happened was uh, that she learned uh, in Hilo, Hawaii, that they had started this, you know, um, they were having success with this. And um, she found out that they were, you know, doing her programs effectively, um, but they were not part of the 100,000 home campaign. And she thought, well, how is this happening? So for like two weeks, she was leaving messages. And finally, she got a hold of someone in Hilo, Hawaii. And the person said, um, oh, yeah, you know, like someone from Honolulu gave it to me in a Starbucks, you know, and then mm-hmm. I just um, she took it back and, you know, put it into play and it was working really effectively. And what Becky found so funny was also the the folks from Honolulu were in a session, you know, a couple of years ago in um, it was in, a, I think, Albuquerque at the time. And she said they were falling asleep like during the session. <laughs> she said they had jet lag. So she said here they were. I didn't even think they were paying attention the whole time. I'm thinking they're getting nothing out of this, but somehow they take the binder home. Not only does Honolulu, you know, kind of do their part, but then the binder gets passed on to someone who starts it in Hilo. And, you know, so it was just this wonderful. um, And so she had to laugh at herself, but, you know, and she kidded around about it being like uh, a lesson in creating good binders, but um, I think it was a story of also she and the team being comfortable with the idea of like, we're just going to share this information. We hope you make it your own and right. localize it. The loss which is of a big, control. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And being comfortable with that, you mm-hmm. know, so like, and, and I think one of the beautiful things that they did across different cities running with these binders is they were okay with saying, and Joe kind of had the sandwich analogy, but like you have the bread and you have the meat, but like make it your own, like anything else. And so mm-hmm. Becky talked about the pieces of the program, this vulnerability index and something else, which she saw as like, keep track of those records, like know those people that, you know, this, this is the way that we kind of handle this, but then anything else you got to do it your way. You got to figure this out. And what they didn't realize and, um, Roseanne Haggerty, which was, uh, you know, she had launched this program. She was the one with the grant and everything. She talked about what was the backbone role, which she said Mm -hmm. was um, her big takeaway, which is like, you have to support them and you can connect them to good people, but then you're not controlling their every move. And I just thought that was, again, your point about being uncomfortable. That isn't comfortable for most leaders. You're used to controlling things or Mm -hmm. whatever. And so letting go of that was actually what really propelled in large part that program to be as successful as it was. I wonder too, if there's another method to getting leaders to understand uh, if you just show them all the things they're actually not in control of, which is the bulk of everything, it might make it easier to, because you're, you're the, the amount of trust that you have to have in a, in, in a business to have things run, run correctly um, is very high. And as, as you write about in the book too, trust just being essential to any of, any of this kind of work, any of this group work. Yeah. And I, I mean, I love your improv for that reason too, you know, mm-hmm. cause I think like having to adapt and, and playing off of, you know, someone else and what worked yeah, or there's no script. Yeah. I think yeah. is, is, you know, potentially something that I've heard is, is really helpful in that regard as well. But yeah. So speaking of which we're, uh, uh, I'm in the book with, so, uh, and I actually forget this cause I know you've been on the podcast before and we've come across each other on the speaker circuit. Uh, but, uh, did, uh, how did you learn about our work with Kim Scott and Ragnall? So- 
I'm trying to think now if that was a podcast, I think I heard oh, yeah. you guys. Yeah, could have been. Um, what else? It must have been the podcast. Um, mm-hmm. But I was fascinated and I thought, oh, of course. And how cool that they're working together. And then the other thing is, I think I heard you talk about it. And yeah. so that might have been on the speaker circuit as well. Like, I think one of the times, I'm not sure if it was Chicago at SIOP, where we were mm-hmm. part of that, like Google sponsored event. Yeah. Um, and you mentioned to me that you were working with her and I was a huge fan of her work and I was mm-hmm. a huge fan of your work. And so the idea of kind of marrying those, um, I love that. And Bob Sutton is in between like that world with, with us too. And it's, it's so yeah. funny, the, the sort of weird, well, that's, and the, again, we're making our own communities. And, and yeah. this is one of the things I, I've loved about working with the behavioral scientists uh, and, the, and then doing this podcast is like, you all know each other. I yeah. mean, it's like, and, and then, and, and there's wonderful resources at different times and people are so generous and, and, you know, we, you know, our work is often, especially with the second science project that we did at university of Chicago was how can we give people practice in, in understanding that it's okay to ask for help? How can yeah. we give them practice in minor sharing of details as a way to form connection and community? Um, and this, and this book is all filled with a various, examples and you know it's it's not it doesn't just point out the problem it also gives you you know solutions and we had um uh uh, annie murphy paul on on the uh podcast uh and i i love this quote from your book uh quote sitting is the new smoking um because her her book (laughs) extended mind has a bunch of stuff on movement and 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 how important the body is to to thinking um and so can you talk to us a little bit about about that importance of physical well-being with regard to everything we're talking about yeah so i um as we've talked about before i love sports so sports is kind of my passion i play college sports and so i'm you know if there's like it's just i live and breathe it and so um i'm always reading about that kind of thing and i worked in sports management and marketing post college mm-hmm. and so um, mark versagan was one person that he founded exos and so that's a story in and of itself but um, I, you know, I really love the idea of, and I think it's tied to the civility stuff, how we take care of ourselves, meaning physical well-being is tied to how we can show up and be a part of our communities. You know, it's how we're present in our interactions that contributes to all that. But probably the research that I, I stumbled upon that I loved the most that was um that I think can be helpful to people. Kelly McConnell's book, Joy of Movement, talked about it, which was um, our muscles are like a pharmacy that pump hope molecules into our system if we move. Mm-hmm. And I just think that's such a beautiful um, picture, you know, yeah. then, and it provides people with something that they can control, which not everyone can move in the same ways. I'm not mm-hmm. suggesting that, but, but that there are things that we can do to try to pull us forward and, and mm-hmm. movement is one of them. And I was fascinated. I mean, I'm probably the oddball kind of professor that in MBA and exec programs will teach energy management stuff. So right. I, I worked with Tony Schwartz a number of years ago. Mm-hmm. And so we had a lot of data around what a difference this makes, like the corporate athlete model and, and that kind of thing. And so I would you know, often teach elements of this and just how important it was to people's performance and their well-being and how few people are actually thriving. Like they're right in a terrible state, like the danger zone, basically 65% of people. Um, And those are people with resources. Like these are people that have the means and have then some also time probably as well. Mm -hmm. 
And so um, I just think it's, it's such an, an important part of kind of controlling our potential and bringing our best selves to our families, our communities, and so forth is the movement piece of it. And um, I remember teaching the energy management stuff. One of the parts that struck me was that movement could be as or more effective than the leading depression drug. Um, there was a study wow. out of Duke Medical School, and this was years ago, but that whole idea of like, if we don't feel good for any reason, whether you're treated badly, whether you're isolated, what have you, a, a good way to kind of jumpstart our own well-being is to start moving. And Kelly McConical lays out like the amplifiers are things like, you know, working out outside, working out with people, working out to music, things like that. Um, so I think that, that that's something, and also just, you know, personally, you mentioned, um, I, I personally, whenever I'm in a rut personally or professionally, that's kind of where I turn because mm -hmm. I feel like that's a way to dig myself out of a hole. And, and that may be like, I feel a little bit better. I get those, you know, um, that adrenaline afterward, immediately afterwards, or it may be like, literally, I start feeling better mentally and physically over time. But it is something that I have turned to that I found that works. And then I love the fact that there's actual research. <laughs> I'm not an outlier, right. you know, that it actually works for people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. In a moment, we're going to ask you for a yes and story. But uh, before that, um, I just want to talk a little bit about your stuff on self-awareness. Um, yeah. I love uh, the stat that you present in the book that 95% of people believe they are self-aware. Um, and that number is more likely 10 to 15%, <laughs> which actually is not, that's the least surprising thing in the book <laughs> in yeah. many ways, but, but bears talking about. So let's talk a little bit about the importance of self-awareness and then, and then why we lack it. Yeah. So that is Tasha Yurik's research. Um, she has a great TEDx talk and a, a wonderful book insight that kind of lays all of that out. But, um, you know, I think it, it ties to my own research in the sense of a lot of the interpersonal problems happen because of not like bad intentions, but you people lacking self-awareness of how they're coming across. And, um, you know, there's stories in the book about a CEO that realized that when he got upset or frustrated, he'd fire off an email often to, you know, hundreds of people, right, around what he needed. And he would have to get an answer back to someone, let's say, within 24 hours. And he realized, you know, he wouldn't hear from the vast majority. It was taking them all this time because they probably wanted to come up with the perfect answer and mm -hmm. so forth. And so he started charting this in an Excel sheet, like how many times in a week he actually got pulled off track. And then he was doing the math and realized how many hours he was off his game, much less how many people he was pulling off right. track mm -hmm. and recognized, okay, I clearly need to change this. Like, and so it's amazing the difference it made. And so now when that kind of thing happens, he said, you know, I actually usually know the answer, but if mm -hmm. I don't know the answer, I identify one or two or three people that I may need to keep in the loop, but I don't, you know, sweep everyone else into it and pull them all off track. And so I just thought that was kind of a nice story around how our own self-aware, you know, his keeping track of his self-awareness, not everyone does it that way, but uh, affects our communities as well. Yeah. And, yeah. and so by correcting just, you know, one thing that can have a huge ripple effect beneficially for others. 
Yeah. One of the things I, I, uh, uh what happened to me a couple of years ago is I basically, uh, designated a couple truth teller friends for basically like, all right, your deal is to tell me the truth when I'm off track and, and they do it. And it's all it's done is deepen the relationship in very positive ways. It's like, it's just, it's, it's a respite in some ways to have that resource. Yeah. And that, I mean, all the um, recommendations really tie to that theme, which is like, how do you get the information and the feedback uh, so that you can make the corrections that you want? And I think, you know, so honing in on our blind spots is huge. And like you said, it's identifying people that will do that in a loving way. You know, Tasha Yurik um, calls them loving critics and that they are so incredibly helpful uh, around that. Well, and that's radical candor too. That's another way yeah. of, of, of doing that. All right. So we always end the podcast with a yes and story. You did this the last time you're here. Do you have a, another story for us? Yeah. So uh, very recently, I just returned from University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. And this was it stemmed from the book, but um, the stories about Anson Dorrance, who coaches the women's soccer team there, he said, we were thinking about collaborating on a book. So this is my next project. And uh, he said, we'll come and you know, come the beginning of preseason and, and like see how this builds. And so I said, well, when is that? And he gave me the preseason. This was, you know, starting in about a week and a half. <laughs> and, I, mm-hmm. um, and he gave me the first game date. And so it was like, you know, two and a half, three weeks. And so um, I took a carry on across country. I was seeing my parents for the first time in a couple of years on the way. And um, I, what ended up starting is two and a half weeks and a yes. And like he said, come live in our basement. You know, our kids just, they were here for COVID. They're not now, you know, whatever. And so it was kind of a bubble experience. And I just, mm-hmm. you know, effectively showed up at a stranger's home and um, preseason and everything else. And that extended through the whole season. Um, and uh, I got to experience, you know, I was basically like an injured player that attended all the practices and all the video sessions and, um, you know, got to spend time with a lot of other coaches that I learned from as well. But it was a really fantastic community um, that probably got me out of the really isolated place where I was. Uh, I had not made a trip, had not seen uh, all but Mike's family. Uh, Mike's family was the only one that I had seen through COVID. And so, um, and I'm one of four. So it was great to kind of break out of it, but also to learn from a community um, of just, you know, warriors, basically, you know, these college students that are living through this and um, wrestling through it. And so it was really unique. Um, And to be a fly on the wall, basically, through player meetings, through um, everything. And I learned so much about culture, building a culture, uh, and building a community and how you support each other also through still a fairly isolated time for many of them. So that was great. I hope you got to buy some clothes. Yeah. Or did you just wear the same thing? (laughs) I came back with the same carry on my backpack was stuffed, the bag was stuffed, but I was pretty proud. I figured if my dad had gone through the Peace Corps and he had said at one point, Mike and I could live out of a backpack, like kind of kidding around about that. I thought, well, this is effectively trying that. So um, yeah, a friend had advised me like when you go, because you don't really know when you're returning, mm-hmm. she said, pack some warm clothes. So I did my best to to do that. But um, yeah, it was a, it was fantastic. You know, and even that it teaches you how little you need, but how, you know, your point earlier before we got started about really like life is about relationships. And so the important elements were there for me and Mm -hmm. 
you know, having a few extra t-shirts or shorts or whatever. I mean, like it would have been convenient, but it, it didn't make or break my experience. I'm sure he had a washing machine, so yeah. you're probably fine. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, the book is called Mastering Community, The Surprising Ways Coming Together Moves Us from Surviving to Thriving. Chris Pora, thank you for coming on the show. Thanks so much for having me. Getting to Yes And podcast is produced by The Second City and WGN Radio. We are supported at The Second City by Mike Farinaccio and Colleen Fahey. Our show is produced by Andrew Harris at WGN. The music that you hear at the beginning and end of the podcast is by Jukebox the Ghost. If you're interested in knowing more about The Second City, you can log on to secondcity.com or email us at works at secondcity.com. Survive